Open up your Bibles to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. This is the next stop in our series called A Healthy Body, which is a topical series on healthy church membership. When this series is done, Deemer will resume our normal practice of preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. Now, as you're finding the text here, let me just ask a question. How many of you have seen the movie Princess Bride? A lot of you. I told Heather this morning, you know my illustration tank is pretty empty if I'm going all the way to Princess Bride now. Um, she hates Princess Bride, okay? How many of you liked that movie? Good, about the same amount of hands. What a, the, left, the right side over here seems a little sticklers or something. They don't like this movie. The side over here likes the movie. So I'm going to talk to these guys over here. The Princess Bride. Now, you remember the movie, a great movie from the 80s. Now, there was, this, there was this peasant girl, and her name was Buttercup. You know she's a peasant because she's dressed in sort of raggedy brown clothes, and she, she's on this farm, but there's another peasant on the farm, and his name is Wesley. And uh, he, Wesley apparently is a laborer on this farm, but apparently Buttercup has some sort of more a higher position than Wesley because in the beginning of the movie there, she is just tormenting Wesley by asking him to do one thing after another, and she calls him farm boy. And she has liberal use of her authority as she snobbishly orders him around to do menial and lowly tasks. Polish my horse's saddle. Fill this with water. Fetch me that pitcher. Now, though Buttercup is maddeningly condescending, uh, Wesley is a model servant. He never refuses her demands. His attitude is kind and willing. And he always responds the same way. What does he say? As you wish. As you wish. And then the narrator reveals that one day Buttercup has a profound insight. As profound as Hollywood can get, at least. A profound insight. And the narrator says this. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. Now, of course, this is talking about the, the romantic, gushy love that the Hollywood movies like to talk about here. But as we study healthy church membership, our love for one another has to be expressed in our service to one another. Just as Wesley, every time he did whatever menial task he did, as you wish, his service was an expression of his love for Buttercup. And so we can say in the church we love one another, but the truth of that love will be revealed in how we serve one another. In this study on healthy church membership, I've mentioned there are 59 one another passages in the scripture, and I've broken them down into four basic categories. First of all, loving one another, which we spent three weeks on in 1 Corinthians 13. Today, we're going to look at serving one another in this passage in John 13. Next week, we'll talk about being at peace with one another, and we'll look at Romans 15, 1 through 7. I think I told you earlier we'd be in Romans 12, but I changed my mind. Romans 15, 1 through 7. And then the last week, uh, November 19th, we'll look at teaching one another. Now, as we think of serving one another, okay, we need to see, as silly as that film was, The Princess Bride, is true to a degree in the sense that if we really do love one another, we really will serve one another and we'll be willing to do the lowest, the most menial of tasks. And that's what Jesus shows us in today's text. 
no matter how low, no matter how menial the task is, the way we say I love you to one another is to serve one another. So please stand now, if you would, as we read today's text, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. It's a well-known passage of Scripture, John 13, 1 through 20. This is taking place on the very night of the Last Supper as Jesus is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and go to the cross. John 13, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place and said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to this tremendous passage of Scripture, I pray, Father, that you would stir up our hearts Stir up our hearts with sacrificial love for one another. May we see in Christ's example. And may we see in Christ's command. And may we see in Christ's cleansing all that we need to do the task you've given us to do. So Father, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see what's in this text, give us ears to hear what's in this text, and grant me a mouth to speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm sure all of you guys remember playing that game as a kid called Limbo, where you take the stick and hold it across and take turns going lower and lower and getting underneath that bar. And there was a little refrain that always went with that game, how low can you go? 
How low can you go? And this text here today is challenging us and asking us, how low are we willing to go to serve others? But this service is not just any type of service. It's a service that has to be enabled by the love of Christ in us. Now, when we think about today's text where Jesus washes feet, we need to quickly understand how astounding this action was. First of all, and you've probably heard this before, but just the simple fact that in those days they walked around in sandals gave them very, very nasty feet. Of course, you walked everywhere, and the simple act of walking causes your feet to sweat, and then you're accumulating all the dirt off the roads there. But more than that, the roads were shared. They weren't just roads that men and women walked on. It was the roads where the animals walked on. And so there was all the, the, the feces and the, every, all the dung that was left there from the animals walking along the road, and that would mix in with the dirt. And so you can only imagine the smell, but imagine all of that caked onto the feet. I mean, if you've ever walked around in sandals, just, just going on a hike or something, you, you see how much dirt gets caked on your feet. Imagine all the time walking everywhere, sharing those roads, what would be the nastiness of what was on the feet. Now, Jesus had sent his disciples earlier to make arrangements for this last supper, for this meal, and they had done so, but apparently there was one set of arrangements that wasn't made, and that was to have someone available to wash feet. Now, foot washing was considered such a a nasty task that students of rabbis were not required to even wash their teacher's feet. So the students of the rabbi, the disciples of the rabbi, were not required to wash their master's feet. Foot washing was considered uh, so nasty that it was reserved usually for slaves. But even that had its limits. In Israel, if a Jewish person had a Jewish slave, by law, they could not require that slave to wash feet. Only a Gentile slave could be required to perform such a menial task. So think of what our Lord is communicating to us. He takes the posture of a slave, a Gentile slave at that, to do what he was not required to do, to do a task that was very humiliating, very nasty. Now in this text, where Jesus displays this humble and sacrificial service, I see three things. I see, number one, an example that we are to follow. Number two, a command that we are to obey. And finally, I see a deeper cleansing that we must experience in order to follow Jesus' example and in order to obey his command. Those three aspects of the passage will be seen in the points of the sermon today. So here's our first observation from this text today. We can truly serve one another when we see in John 13 the humble love that we are to emulate. The humble love that we are to emulate. By this I'm referring to that example that we are to follow. Jesus tells us in verse 15 that his actions were an example that we should do just as he had done. For sure, this story is not just a moral example for us to follow, but it is at least that. We are to emulate the humble love that is here so vividly displayed in our Lord Jesus. And so this morning we need to fix our eyes on Christ and get a glimpse of his deep, deep love. That's why we sang that first song. And first we see that Jesus' love is a love that endures to the end. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own 
who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end could also be translated, he loved them to the fullest extent. We're not to think that Jesus' love for his disciples would end once his earthly ministry ended. Instead, we are to see that Jesus' love was full and complete and enduring. His love for those who are his, for those who are Christians, is eternal in its nature. Romans 8.35 rhetorically asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is, of course, in those amazing verses that follow, nothing and no one. Now to see the extent of Jesus' amazing steadfast love, let, let me remind us of the circumstances surrounding this text. This meal is taking place at the end of his ministry, on the night he was to be betrayed and arrested. And Jesus has full self-awareness of what is going on. Look at verse 1 again. Verse 1 says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. He knew what was coming. From this very text today, we see that he knew of Judas's impending betrayal. From verse 38, later in this chapter, we see that he knew that Peter, the leader of the disciples, would deny him three times. And the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he knew that the rest of the disciples would fearfully flee into the shadowy darkness of the night. He knew all of these things, and he knew that he would now suffer and die for their sin. Yet, with all of that pain that was coming his way, pain inflicted by the very ones he loved, his love was steadfast to the end. What an example of the long-suffering love that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. What an example of the love that endures all things that we looked at from 1 Corinthians 13, 7. How easily we let infinitely lesser offenses derail our love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We easily justify our lack of love towards those who disappoint us, those who hurt us, to those who sin against us, but not our Lord. Behold the steadfast love of our God, continuing in verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, who are the his own who are in the world? This refers to the elect, the sheep for whom he would lay down his life in John 10, verses 11 and 15. Repeatedly in John's gospel, we read that Christians are those whom the Father gave to the Son. John 6, verse 37 says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This means that the love that Jesus has for us, for believers, is an electing, a choosing love, not a reactive love that waits for us to make the first move. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So we know that this eternal, salvific love is love for his own. It's love for the elect. But there is one man on the scene today in this story who is not of the elect. His name is Judas. So look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Let me pause right there. Because I want you to notice something. In today's text, Jesus washes Judas' feet too. Matter of fact, John goes out of his way to remind us that Judas is here in verse 2, in verse 11, in verse 18, and then later in verses 22 through 30 of this passage. So here's my point. 
we see that this love that we are called to imitate is not only a love that endures to the end, it is a love that overflows even to one's enemy. Saving love is a love whereby we, those who have placed their faith in Christ, are folded into the Trinitarian love within the Godhead. And those outside of Christ do not experience that type of love, but they are still loved by God. We know this from Ezekiel 33, 11, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God does have a deep and patient love for his enemies. And thus, as children of God, we are called to have that love as well. Of course, the most important passage in the Scriptures that I can think of regarding our need to love our enemies is found in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that, so that, and so here's why we should do this, you may be sons of of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, we look like our Father if we love our enemies, if we wash the feet of our enemies, if we go low to serve not only one another, but also those outside the church, and especially our enemies. Why? Because we want to be like our Father. The text goes on to say in that passage, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same? And listen to this, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The ability to love those outside of Christ and specifically one's enemies is a sign that you are becoming holy as your heavenly Father is holy. It's evidence of your sanctification. The destiny of those who do not repent is in God's hands, not ours. What we are called to do is show patient, persistent, palpable love to those who hate God and hurt us. And we don't even know that perhaps, perhaps the love that we show them might be the very means God uses to draw them to himself and save them. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless And do not curse them. Notice Paul doesn't call for us just to endure. He tells us to be proactive. Take the initiative. Bless. Verse 19 of that passage. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here. We've already talked some about this when we were talking about that patient meekness that must mark true Christian love. But we see it in this practical example of our Lord Jesus who stoops down low to love and serve even the man who would betray him with a kiss. So we are to imitate Christ's love that knows no end. It's a love also that knows no enemy and it's a love that knows no entitlement. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus, again, is fully self-aware. If you break verse 3 down into three parts, you'll see that he knew, first of all, the divine authority that he possessed, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. And secondly, he was fully aware of his divine origin, that he had come from God. And thirdly, 
he knew of his divine destiny, that he was going back to God. So knowing his divine power and majesty and glory, he willfully set it aside to stoop low to serve his disciples. Jesus would entertain no attitude of entitlement that might prevent him from doing the lowliest of acts of service. Well, friends, if our Lord Jesus, who had every right as the glorious Son of God not to do a slave's work, if he stooped so low, how much more should we be willing to set aside our rights and privileges to sacrificially serve others? I praise God that we live in a nation where we have been given rights, but we live in a culture where rights have become an idol. It's my right to do this. It's my right to do that. Our pride will too often keep us from getting uncomfortable and getting dirty and letting go of our rights. Our pride will lead us to have a spirit of apathy that says, well, that, that's just not my calling. Well, friends, in light of Christ's actions, there can be no type of service that is beneath you that is beneath your calling. Pride is the enemy of serving. We read in Luke 22, verses 24 and following, on that very night, actually during this very meal, it says this in Luke 22, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus also said in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The, the lesson that our Lord Jesus taught them via this little rebuke in Luke 22, here in John 13, he's teaching them as a living parable. So let's continue with verse 4. It says that he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And friends, this is how a slave would have been dressed. This would have been an act of, of degradation and humiliation for the average person to strip down and to put this slave's garb on. But Jesus embraces the humiliation. He wraps himself in shame for the sake of others. Verse 5. Then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We are called, friends, to imitate what happens here in John 13, which is a parable, a parable of what Jesus did on a much grander scale. Dima read for us earlier Philippians 2. Do you see the parallels between John 13 and Philippians 2? Let me just start in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, and hold on to this, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That'll come into play later on in the sermon. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That is, he, he laid aside those outer garments of divinity by taking the form of a servant. And here he is putting on that towel, wrapping it around his waist, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. And I have said to you guys before, the cross was usually reserved for slaves and revolutionaries. And Jesus was both. We too, as we follow Christ's example, are to embrace humility. I have to wonder if Peter had this incident of John 13 in his mind when he wrote 1 Peter 5, 5. Because he says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in today's text, we at least see an example that we are to follow. But there's also a command that we are to obey. In order to see this, I want us to jump down to verse 12. I'm not going to forget about verses 6 through 11. I'm going to come back to those for the third point. For right now, I want you to jump down to verse 12. And here we will see the next point, the happy mission that we are to embrace. So in this passage, we see a humble love that we are to emulate, and we see a happy mission that we are to embrace. We serve in the church, we serve one another, not just as a following of Christ's example, we also serve out of obedience because it's part of the mission we've been sent on. Where do I see that? Well, let's read verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So there's the example. But now listen to verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, now let me pause. I've said this before. That formula, truly, truly, it's like putting an exclamation point on the sentence, marking what he's about to say as very, very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, and listen to this, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, I want to focus on those two words, messenger and sent. The text is clear from the parallel here. We are servants, and Jesus is the master, and thus we are messengers and Jesus is the sender. The point being that we, the messengers, are sent to do what? To do what the master has done. Namely, to stoop low, to humbly, meekly, sacrificially serve one another. We must see that part of our commission, part of our great commission, is to serve. To go as low as we can go in order to lift up others. Today's text makes it clear that sacrificial service is part of the mission that we've been given. John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Harbins, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to wash the crud off of these people's feet right here. Look around you. Spiritually speaking, there are some smelly, nasty feet. There is some nasty crud that people have walked into this church body with. And it is not only or even primarily your pastor's job to help wash that junk off. It's your job. It's your mission. You are to stoop down and help wipe off the depression 
by encouraging one another. You're to help wipe off the loneliness by welcoming one another, showing hospitality to one another. You're to wipe off the shame by outdoing one another in showing honor. You are to go so low that when the crud and the grime of life causes your brother or sister to weep, you weep with them. You carry one another's burdens. And friends, this has nothing to do with a program in the church. We can't sit around and wait for a job description and a program. It's our pride that limits our usefulness to organized programs and observable positions of service. The opportunities to serve one another in this church are limited only by your imagination. Write a card. Send an email. Ask for a prayer request. Invite someone to dinner. Ask about someone's kids. Babysit someone's kids. Sell some of your gadgets and gizmos and bless someone who is in need. Ask the deacons if you can do a task that they haven't had time to do. Ask a widow or a single mom how you can meet her needs. Go visit Edwin and Mary Johnson. Just go sit with them and read them a psalm and smile as you listen to her stories, even if you've heard them 20 times before, and pray with them and love on them. No one will notice any of these things. They won't be in any job description. You won't see your name in the bulletin. Tim Keller writes that in his book, Ministries of Mercy, that he oftentimes hears people say, I work my fingers to the bone in this church, and what thanks do I get? He goes on to say, is that the way it is? Your service was for thanks? Are you in your right mind? Servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. Let me say that again. Servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. Do you know who Dorcas was in the Scriptures? I know it's a funny-sounding name. Dorcas, Tabitha was her other name. Scriptures say she was full of good works and charity. A fairly unknown person in the church, but she was greatly loved. She died. Peter went, and God, through Peter, performed an amazing miracle and rose her up from the dead. But as they're weeping around her, they're showing off things that she did. They were showing tunics and garments that she had made. There was no garment tunic making program in the early church. There was a woman who saw people in need and said, I'm going to meet that need. And she did it. That's humble service that pleases God. Have you ever heard of a famous slave? Go get dirty. Go do the unknown, the unheralded work of a slave. Wipe the crud off each other's lives. It is not a burden. It is a blessing. That's why I call this a happy mission. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, 
What does it say? Blessed are you if you do them. Blessed, meaning happy, joyful, contented, gratified. Oh, friends, the Christian life of downward stooping, of going low to lift up and build up others, is not a burden, but a joy. It's a satisfying, gratifying thing to do to selflessly serve others. But notice it's an experiential love. It's not a theoretical one. Verse 17, if you know these things, intellectual knowledge, if you know these things, You only become blessed when you do the second part. Blessed are you if you do them. So in order to experience this joy and this happiness, you actually have to do something. You actually have to to give legs to what's in your heart. Oh, friends, don't sit here this morning and leave this message in your head. Let it move from your head to your heart and then to your hands. And then you will be blessed. You'll be gratified. You'll be filled with joy. You'll be satisfied. It's amazing what contentment will fill your life when you give up of yourself and give up of your stuff to simply serve others. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who hear and keep it. Do it. So leave here this morning with a joy-stirring, foot-washing plan. Leave this building this morning with a plan. Here's how I am going to wash some feet at this church. I'm reminded of Paul's final words to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, he says this, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, This is Jesus' words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Blessed. It's happy. It's joyful. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So Harbins, go scrape the gunk off of each other's feet and you'll discover a deep, deep well of joy. And you'll realize something. In doing that, you're actually serving the Lord himself. Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed, blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, these brothers, you did it unto me. Let these words of Jesus regarding sacrificial love to one another bring your minds to Psalm 100, verse 2, which says, Serve the Lord with gladness. How do you serve the Lord with gladness? You can come, you can worship, you can sing. Yes, do that. But one of the ways you serve the Lord with gladness is to scrape crud off the feet of your brothers and sisters. And so continuing with today's text, let's look at verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen 
but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So again, Jesus is singling out Judas, but why? Look at verse 19. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, you need to know that in verse 19 here, the, the word he at the end of this verse has been supplied by the translators. It's not in the Greek. So let me read it again without that. When it does take place, you will believe that I am. This is the exact same I am construction in the Greek from John 8, 58, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. In other words, Jesus is showing us by his prediction of Judas's betrayal yet even more evidence that he is God. He is Yahweh. And thus we are to put all of our hope, all of our faith in him. And then our Lord finishes off this passage with verse 20. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, there's that exclamation point again, Whoever receives the one I send, there's the mission again. Whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, the one who sent me. So we have been sent by the Son, just as the Son was sent by the Father. And when people receive our service to them, they are actually receiving service from God. So in this text, we have an example to imitate. And we have a mission to obey. But if this text was only about an example to imitate, and a mission to obey, we're in big trouble. Why? Well, let me, let me let you jump down to verse 34. It says this in John 13, 34. You love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Are you serious, Jesus? We can't do that. Not in our power. We're sinful beings. But friends, our only hope to love as he loved is for his love to flow through us. And the only way his love can flow through us is if we've been cleansed at a much deeper, deeper level. And so we need to see the third level, a deeper level of today's text. And we're going to go back to verses 6 through 11 to see this. Here we go. First of all, we have the humble love that we are to emulate. We have the happy mission that we are to embrace. And finally, the holy cleansing by which we are enabled. Enabled what? Enabled to do this. To do this service. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now once again, here's Peter being quick to speak and slow to listen. In the Greek, this is actually a triple negative. You shall never, no, never wash my feet. Peter may be thinking he's being noble and defending Jesus' honor, but actually he's being prideful. One commentator wrote, Peter is humble enough to see the incongruity of Christ's actions, yet proud enough to dictate to his master. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Verse 9, Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Isn't this classic Peter? In his zeal, there's no halfway with him. Notice that he's still dictating the terms, isn't he? Friends, we must guard against our zeal for Christ leading us to dictate terms to Christ in regards to how he should do things. But focus on me here with Jesus' words in verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What, what does Jesus mean? I think it is here that we find the message underneath the message. Jesus could have just said, Peter, you are blowing my illustration. Just be quiet. Just zip it, Pete. Let me go on with this, okay? You'll, you'll understand later. But he doesn't do that. 
Instead, he says something. He says in verse 10, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus is washing their feet, yet he speaks of them being completely clean, meaning that there is a greater, a deeper cleansing that Peter had already experienced when he placed his faith in Christ. The deeper cleansing is the cleansing of having one's sins forgiving. The cleansing that allows us to come to God, that justifies us before God. How do we know that this is what Jesus is talking about? Well, we know because of the contrast that Jesus again draws by bringing our attention to Judas. Look at the second half of verse 10. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Judas did not stand forgiven before God. He was never a true follower of Jesus. Instead, Jesus elsewhere calls him a son of destruction. So the question this morning is, which are you? There were two types of people in that upper room that evening. There are two types of people in the room today. And it's really this simple. If you have repented of your sins and turned from your uncleanliness and placed your hope, your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then you have been completely cleansed before God. If you have not, then you've not been cleansed. And if you're in that situation today, I would call on you to believe in the word of Jesus Christ this morning. Believe on the gospel. And then, and only then, you will stand before him clean. John 15, 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So for the Christian here this morning in this service, you might be saying, but wait a second. What about the sin that remains in me that I still struggle with? Well, friends, you need to know that those who are completely clean are also still being clean. You see, as we walk through this fallen world that we are no longer a part of because we now belong to the kingdom of light, but as we walk through this fallen world, our spiritual feet get dirty, and thus we need the cleansing work to be continually applied to us, already purchased, but continually applied. We know this from 1 John 1. 1 John 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now I want you to see the connection there, the fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleansing us of all sin. That cleansing right there is a present, ongoing tense. Jesus continues to cleanse you. And part of the way he does that is when we in the body love one another, serve one another, admonish one another, help each other defeat sin. It's one of the tools he uses for our sanctification. And so the blood of Jesus cleanses us ongoing from all sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This was written to the church. The sure, certain, once for all cleansing by the blood of Christ, our justification is daily applied to those who are his. That's sanctification. So, by God's grace alone, we are washed clean, and by God's grace alone, we are being washed clean. So, Christian, don't despair when you see the dirt in your life. Know that before God, if you have confessed Christ as Lord, you are clean. But also know that he wants to do a work in you to kill that sin 
so you are also still being clean. So why did I want us to see this second and deeper level to this acted out parable? And I'm bringing the sermon in for a landing now. How is this essential to us being able to serve one another? Well, first of all, we must see it is only because of God's grace at work in us that we're able to serve one another at all. It's only because of God's grace at work in his cleansing work in us that we're even able to serve one another. Apart from that, we'd be helpless. The one who has washed his robes in the blood of the Lamb has been given a new heart, a heart enabled by God to go lower and lower and lower. If you were convicted of what I said earlier about serving people in a lowly way, only Christ can take you there. Only the power of Christ in us with new hearts can make that happen. So stoop down, Harbonites, but not in your own power, but by the power of the one who is working in us, that which is pleasing in his own sight, Hebrews 13, 21. The one who powerfully works within us, according to Colossians 1, 29. But secondly, so there's the first thing. We, we can't do this without the power of God at work in us. But secondly, the solution to our unwillingness to serve is to fix our minds on the gospel by which we have been cleansed. When we meditate on the gospel, we become people who want to lay down our lives for others the way Jesus laid down his life for us. We want to become people who want to serve others the way our king has served us. We want to become people who love other people the way that we have been loved. Someday, someday we will wish that we had served more. Friends, don't be sitting on your deathbed wishing you had accumulated less and served more. One day we will wish we had served others more. Someday we will wish we had rejoiced in every opportunity to make sacrifices for the church's needs. The church is the discipleship program that God has given to his people. And it is through wiping muck off of each other's feet that we move farther along in our Christ-likeness. The gospel, friends, will make you want to serve others. So, friends, preach the gospel to yourselves daily. Every day. And so now, by the grace of God at work in us, and by the light of the gospel, let us strip off our pride. Let us dress ourselves for the messy task. Let us take the posture of a slave, and let us begin the happy work of wiping the gunk off of each other's feet. Let us show our love in the way we serve. Let's pray.